You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, recently I um, saw a video of a car manufacturing plant, which, if you've never seen one, is quite an impressive thing. Great sheets of metal being whirled through the air by giant machines placed in, in just the precise location. Those are just the major body parts with thousands and thousands of components all coming together and um, being assembled in this intricate array to give us the thing that we know and love and use pretty much every day. But there's a moment in that assembly process, there's a, a key moment, and that's not meant to be a pun, but you'll understand why I said that in a minute. There's a key moment when all those things come together. Um, and that's the moment when somebody starts the engine and drives the car out of the plant. They usually do a, uh, onto a test track or something like that just to make sure everything's running correctly. So you've got this giant assembly line. Everything's put together. Presumably it's all been tested individually. But once it's all assembled together, somebody puts the key in the ignition or maybe one of those keyless things, but they press the start button and the car roars into life and everything begins to happen. And um, that, I think, is a picture of what the theological significance is, or the significance for us is, of the ascension, which is what we're going to be talking about today. We could talk about Pentecost, based on that reading, but we're going to talk about that next week. So we're going to focus on the ascension. And my suspicion is that, if you're anything like me, most of your Christian life, if maybe even up to today, the ascension is sort of like a bookend, like something that happened after the Gospel's finished, all the important stuff out of the way, and then we've got to kind of finish things off, in a way, so... Jesus isn't here now. We've got to explain why he's not here now. So he ascended, right? We can't see him anymore. But what's it all about? That's the question. What's what's the significance for us today? Well, the ascension is the key in the ignition of God's salvation plan. This whole of salvation history, everything from uh, Adam through to the ministry of Jesus, his death and resurrection, is God assembling all the parts, if you like. But the ascension is the key in the ignition after which all of the effects of God's salvation plan come into, uh, begin to happen, basically. And that's the significance of it. Um, everything that Jesus had accomplished begins to become effective. So one key thing to remember, that's the kind of, uh, the picture we're going to unpack this morning. One key thing to remember that makes this ascension so special is it's not just that Jesus goes back to heaven. It's not just that he returns back to where he came from. And that, I think, is probably for me, definitely as I've thought about this over the years, or not thought about it really, the thing I've missed over the years is, I think subconsciously, I've always thought of Jesus, he just went back again, right? But there's a key difference, and this is uh, kind of the the central theme, if you like. We're going to have three points, but there's kind of one root to these three points that I I really love you to take away. And if it sticks in your memory, it will bear fruit in your Christian life. There's one key point. uh, There's something different about Jesus when he returns to the Father that's different about him from when he came in the first place. He literally takes something with him that he didn't have before. You know what it is? Is it too early for retor- the sort of interactive questions? Anyone want to shout out? What does he take back that he didn't have when he came down? Yes, abs. I, you should get that because <laughs> you're my wife. <laughs> Abby said, his humanity. The thing that Jesus takes back and the, the root of why the ascension is so important is, and, and the ignition piece, if you look, the ignition key in the whole salvation plan is the thing that Jesus takes back to heaven that he didn't have when he came in the first place 
is his humanity. Actually, we could even say our humanity. Our humanity. We're connected with him by virtue of the fact that he's fully God and fully man. Left to our own powers, we have no access to the Father's house, no access to the life of God. But because Jesus in his humanity is in heaven, we now have access to that wonderful salvation and everything that goes with it. So we're going to unpack three aspects uh, taken from Luke's account in, uh, in Acts of what that means that Jesus, has, as a man, has ascended. We're going to try and unpack those three things a little bit and apply them and let God speak to our hearts as well. So it's not just information, hopefully, but something for us to respond to today. And uh, just to help us, those three things, hopefully this isn't overcomplicating things, but classically, we, uh, in theology, we often talk about um, the ministry of Jesus as divided into three things, prophet, priest, and king. You might have heard that before. Jesus is a God's prophet, priest, and king. And we're going to follow those three things to show how Jesus continue those, continues those ministries of prophet, priest, and king, but now in a different way because he, as a man, has ascended to heaven. So if you can't remember all that, don't worry. We're going to go over it again. But we're going to look at prophet, priest, and king. So firstly then, Jesus' office as prophet after the ascension. Jesus continues to be the prophet of God, but in a new way. So this is basically the first point. The ascension changes the way that God speaks to the world. In the past, God spoke to the world before Jesus through his prophets, right? He would anoint men with the Holy Spirit who would speak with power, the convincingly, powerfully, persuasively, divisively sometimes, the word of God into the world. They were filled with the Spirit. They were witnesses to God through word and through powerful deeds. They would uh, perform miracles. So think of what they were like. We can think of people like uh, Moses, um, Abraham or Moses or Samuel or Nathan or Elijah and so on. And someone pointed out to me just some interesting little thing I was listening to this week. They also said, and did you notice about all those prophets? They also had influence in God's court as well. It wasn't just that they spoke for God, but they were able to have conversations with God and say, why are you doing that? And I think you should do this. Sounds kind of controversial, but actually each of those people we, we thought of, they had this interaction. So they had this very special place in God's plan. And then, of course... All the prophets in the Old Testament were actually just building up to the prophet, the fulfillment of all those things, the the supreme prophet, Jesus Christ. God spoke definitively through his son, as the writer to the Hebrews says. Empowered in just the same way as a man by the Holy Spirit. And did just the same things. He spoke God's truth, but even more fully, uh, definitively than everyone had gone before. He uh, did works of power to show the, uh, the kingdom of God and the kingship of God breaking into the world, but even more fully than everyone came before. But after the ascension, after Jesus, who's fulfilled everything that's gone before, goes up to heaven, what happens to this prophetic witness? What happens to this spirit-filled men who spoke God's truth and performed these miracles? Well, the answer to that is in verse 8 of our reading this morning. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this uh, is the transferal of that prophetic uh, commission. Not a full transfer, but if you like, a commissioning of Jesus to the body of Christ. So is that promise, is that promise that Jesus has spoken to them, is that just for the first disciples, just for that group of apostles? No, it's actually for the whole church. 
As Peter makes plain at Pentecost, he quotes Joel, I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's not just the promise about we will receive the spirit, but it's also a, a statement, a commissioning to say, now the church, all the people of God, all who are born again and declare uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord, now a part of that prophetic witness. It is a dynamic and massive expansion of God's way of speaking into the world. I think that's quite cool. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing spread, isn't it? Of uh, just a, a growth of how God speaks to the world. To give an example of just that contrast, I think. I, was, um, I can't remember why I was reading it or where I was reading it, but I found out about something called the Pony Express in America. Getting a few nods from Steve here. Which um, was basically, before uh, there was a telegraph line across... Um, across America, if you wanted to send a message from the East Coast to the West Coast, you could pay a fee, and really brave guys would basically ride as fast as they can from one side of America to the other. And they would transfer a message. It would take about 10 days, which was brilliant back then. <laughs> it's kind of mind-blowing to think about that, isn't it? To think about how different the world is. 10 days was like, wow. Um, so actually, Lincoln's election, uh, Abraham Lincoln's election to uh, be president in 1860, uh, broke a record because news of his election only took seven and a half days to get from one side of the country to the other. So there's this, uh, there's this way of doing things which seemed amazing at the time, but the Pony Express only lasted 19 months because somebody managed to run a, a telegraph cable, telegram cable across the country. And so suddenly messages were instantaneous. So what we're looking at is a, as a transition from something like that, something was great and amazing, God spoke through the prophets, to something even better. Actually, the telegraph thing's not really right. Imagine if those people living in 1860 could see what we had now in terms of communication. That's the kind of contrast. It's going from one man, one at a time, one message, one thing at a time, through to broadcast across the world. That's God's plan. His, his plan for this growth of, um, of the prophetic witness through the church. He pours out his Holy Spirit on us. So this epic magnific- magnification and power. So the whole church becomes a prophetic voice for God, proclaiming the gospel, discerning and proclaiming God's counsel, um, interpreting the times, filled with the Holy Spirit. We perform miracles and we testify through concrete comprehensively spirit-filled lives to the truth of God's kingdom. That's the mission of the church. To speak in every possible way about the truth that God is alive. Spirit-empowered witness. We are part of Christ's body fulfilling that prophetic office. So go and do it. That's the application. (laughs) Go do it. Loads of applications we could apply. Something really came to mind for me this morning that I, I, just, I wanted to speak to you guys about on this. Think about that for a moment. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They ask, they ask Jesus, he's about to go. Um, they don't know that. They ask him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking like all the prophecies, Isaiah 11, it's all going to happen now. And he says, no, I've got a better plan. I'm going to go away. And then we're gonna, I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit on you. And then you're going to go and do it. Great plan, Jesus. <laughs> so you imagine what they were thinking right in that moment. That's how they felt. You know, just this group of guys, they had no idea what to expect when the Spirit was poured out on them. I can't imagine they began to understand the magnitude of what God could achieve uh, through them. They must have been sceptical. Is God's plan really to use the church? 
And I think that's a question that we encounter ourselves quite a lot too. Do we actually believe that God uses the church to proclaim his goodness to the world? Are we confident in that? And I think often we're not. And it leaks out sometimes in our attitudes, sometimes in our attitudes to each other, sometimes in how confident we are in the church, uh, sometimes in the way we relate to unbelievers. And um, C.S. Lewis picks up on this um, idea of how difficult it is to believe that the church is God's means of being his prophetic witness in the world in a book called The Screwtape Letters. Anyone read The Screwtape Letters? Yeah, a few hands. So if you don't know it, the basic idea of The Screwtape Letters is there's this demon who's trying to tempt a guy um, away from Jesus, and the guy becomes a Christian, and so he's trying everything he can to get him to, to basically give up on his faith. And, or actually, it's one demon writing to another, giving advice on how to tempt this guy. Here's a little section on the church. Uh, so the guy, uh, the demon is writing this. He says this, imagine a demonic voice, because I'm not going to do that in church. <laughs> one of our great allies, he writes, at present, is the church itself. One of our great allies in getting people not to believe. It's the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, that is quite invisible to these humans. All your patience sees, all this new believer sees, is the half-finished sham Gothic construction on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understand. One shabby little book containing some corrupt text of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to the pew and looks around him, he sees a selection of his neighbours whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbours, the demon says. Make his mind flip to and fro between the expression, the body of Christ, and the actual faces in the pew next to him. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbours sings out of tune, or has boots that squeak, or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which, in fact, is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armour and bare legs. And the mere fact that other people in the church wear modern clothes is a real difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected the church to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind and you will have all eternity to amuse yourself by producing in him the most peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. Work hard, then, on the disappointment or the anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks at church. The whole point is to get him not to think about what did you actually expect church to be like? And this is, this is the point. I think C.S. Lewis is you know, a genius in, in, in addressing these issues of the heart, really, through the voice of... Uh, you know, as apparent enemy, but when you think about it, what do we expect church to be like? This is what he's saying is, if this guy gets in his head, church is going to be full of people like him. Sinners. Broken. Messed up. Weak. Quirky. All sorts of things. 
He's not going to see it from God's perspective. You know, what did you expect church to be like? And guys, there's, I think there's a huge amount of grace in that question. What do you expect church to be like if it's made up of people just like you? It's going to be, sorry, it's going to be at times faintly ridiculous. It's going to seem like an anticlimax from a worldly perspective. Isn't it? And yet, the Bible says, the Bible says that it's the means of God's salvation to the world. He's going to pour out his grace through the church. He's going to draw all men to himself through the church. You know, I remember listening to a, a lyric, and you'll know this one. I've probably misquoted it, but a lyric by a band, and it began, the song began something like this. The greatest cause of unbelief in the world today is Christians who honor Jesus with their mouths, but deny him with their lives. Something like that? Does that sound about Lifestyles. DC Talk. Just, if you want to know the reference. You know, I hear that, and I, my, my response now is, you know what, I'm not sure, you know. I think maybe the greatest cause of disbelief is Christians who say that sort of thing <laughs> about other Christians. Because God calls us to love the church like he loves it. Imperfect, broken, weak, and yet full of his grace and power. Maybe you've had enough of someone at church. Maybe you've had enough of church altogether and are wondering what this whole ridiculous business is all about. Maybe you're wary of bringing someone to church because of all the weirdness or nastiness or whatever it is that you see. But there's something about our weakness that enables God's power to shine through. Something about our weakness that enables God's power to shine through. Don't you agree? Broken lives being made new. How we deal with sin. How we forgive one another. How we repent for one another. That's the beauty of the church. And that's what we have to have confidence in. So just that's the first application. You know, I mean, there's so many things we could say about God you know, speaking through his church today. But the first thing I'd just say, have confidence in God's methods. You may be as shocked or even more shocked than the disciples were that God's plan is to use you and this group of people and all the other people, the Christians in the world. But that's his method, and he's wiser than you or I. Such grace. So God, uh, Jesus continues his, his office of prophet. Okay, secondly then, Christ continues to exercise the office of priest in his ascension, but in a new way. Why? Because a man is now in heaven. A new way, because a man is now in heaven. And that's indicated by when uh, Luke writes about the cloud takes him out of their sight. Uh, it's, I think the modern translations of this are quite poor, because I think the way you read this is it's like when you're looking at a, you know, a plane flying up from Gatwick, and you're watching where it goes, and then it just gets fainter and fainter, and the cloud comes across, you're like, oh, I can't see anymore. And then the cloud goes, and you're like, oh, it's gone. And then you will go in and have a cup of tea or something. You're like, the apostles are standing around, just like, oh, he's going, he's got, I, I think I can still see him. I can't, oh, I can't see him, I can't see him. Oh, what do we do now? That's not what Luke meant to say. The cloud in scripture represents something very specific, almost always. It represents the glory of God in the holy of holies. And so when the cloud takes Jesus out of their sight, it, it's representing, it's showing in a physical way that Jesus is entering the Holy of Holies in the, the, the heavenly temple. Jesus is going to be a high priest. 
So it says in uh, Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Not symbolically. Not just mentally, not some abstract concept. Jesus has really actually gone there as a man. He still has a man's body. So in the temple... Thinking back to the Jewish system, after the sacrifice, the priest would enter into the sanctuary and sprinkle the Holy of Holies with blood. This is one one particular sacrifice, but I'm skipping over a few details. So the sacrifice becomes effective, not at the moment the sacrifice is made on the altar, but the moment when the blood is sprinkled on the altar and the incense rises up to God. And that's what's happening here. The, The sacrifice of Jesus becomes effective at the moment when the high priest takes the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice, into the altar. So the cross becomes effective at the moment of Jesus' ascension. You see why it's the key in the ignition? You see why the ascension is so important? Because that's actually the moment when the benefits of Christ's death begin to become effective to us. So from Hebrews 9, again, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here... He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands. That is to say, that's not part of this new this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. You see the parallel? Okay, but what does that mean for us? Beautiful scriptural parallels, but what does it mean for us? It means that an actual exchange is happening. A connection is being made between our humanity, which Christ now shares, and God's life, God's divine life. A connection is being made, not in theory, but actually. So it says in verse 15 of Hebrews 9, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. We receive an eternal inheritance because Christ shares our humanity and is in heaven. What is that inheritance? That we should share the very life of God himself. That we should have the joy of God, the peace of God, the fullness of God, the beauty of God, the goodness of God, the joy of God, the peace of God. All these things should be ours more and more and more now and for all, increasing forever until etern- into eternity. The very life of God. We become adopted sons. You know, in Latin, the word for priest is pontifex. And that word literally means a bridge builder. Pontifex, bridge builder. That is Christ's job. He is a bridge builder. He's gone into the Holy of Holies to build a bridge over which our humanity can go to God and he can take our sins to be purified in God's presence. And God's divine life can cross the bridge back to us and flow into our lives. So one great uh, Christian from history, a guy called Leo the Great, who's a bishop in Rome in the 5th century, said this. Truly, it was a great and indescribable source of rejoicing when, in the sight of the heavenly multitudes, the nature of our human human race ascended over the dignity of all heavenly creatures to pass the angelic orders and to be raised beyond the heights of archangels. In its ascension, it did not stop at any other height until this same nature was received at the seat of the Eternal Father to be associated on on the throne of glory. Of that one to whose nature is joined in the Son. 
You know, so in the Old Testament, we have this amazing picture in one of the Psalms. You've made, made mankind a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and placed everything under his dominion. But guys, that's just the starting point. God made us a little lower than the angels, but he has raised us higher than that. That's his plan. God took on human flesh in the sun and he will never put it off so that we might have his life. How privileged we are. What can you say? What can you say? There's nothing to say, is there? God is going to give us everything. No, it's not going to hold anything back from us. Just everything just pales, doesn't it, before that truth. He's not withheld anything from us. How privileged we are to be called the sons of God. Well, I can't say anything, but I want to say something that touches down to our experience. Um, Because give us something to take away concrete today. What does this tell us? But it tells us a couple of things about uh, how we should behave as Christians. And I want to make this point there because I think it's relevant and I've touched on it a few times recently and I think it's worth bringing up again and again. Firstly, it shows us the dignity of human nature. That made in God's image, Jesus who shares our humanity is able to be in heaven. And now he's in a glorified state. He is like, it's really hard for us to understand, but Jesus' resurrection physicality is like a, it's like the relationship of a sphere to a, a circle a sphere isn't less than a circle is it it's the same as a circle but it's it's also more and that's the body that jesus has and that's the kind of body we will have we will never be less than human but because we're human we're going to be even more and more and more of what god intended us to be that's about as close as i can get <laughs> explaining it really but what that means is that the way God made us is so incredibly precious like we're made in god's image to sh- to show forth his glory to the world Each person is able to reflect God's glory in a way that nobody else can. And from that fact, this is a little takeaway. It's a little bit abstract, but it's really, really important. If it sticks in your head, it will do you good. That's where all Christian ethics come from when it comes to the value of human life. It's not just that people are important or, you know, they're lovely and we should look after them like, you know, redwoods or squirrels or something you know it's not just that they're rare or they're the most complex organism in the universe which we are as far as we know it's that we are made to shine forth all of god's glory and only we can do that so uh, an embryo inside a, a woman a baby is on its way to to being born it's is not just unique in some kind of biological way that we should protect it but it's powerfully unique in a spiritual dimension as well. The value of life, the commands about murder, all those things, all flow from that. We're still a bit abstract, I know, but I hope that's helpful. But to bring it into the present, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I just want to flesh it out for you guys to give you some tools to engage with a very present issue. Um, it has bearings on how we, what we believe about things like gay marriage and same-sex relationships and the whole transgender issue again. So let me give you an illustration. Let's talk about, we've talked about the Pony Express, we've talked about telegrams, let's talk about telephones. A telephone is this amazing thing that's perfectly designed 
to enable communication between one point and another. That's right, isn't it? I mean, that's a pretty weird description of a telephone, I'll admit, but it's basically true, isn't it? And what the ascension tells us, and Jesus' humanity as his office of priest, as a man in heaven tells us, is that our human nature is a bit like that telephone. It is perfectly designed to communicate God's life to us, to enable us to know him and love him and be loved by him and to overflow with that love full of the Holy Spirit. We're perfectly designed in our physicality to do that. Us and the whole world around us. It got broken at the fall, so we couldn't, that divine life couldn't flow to us anymore, but Jesus fixed it. That's what he came to do. And so through him we come to have fellowship with God. What that means is, bear with me if, you're, if, if I'm losing you, what that means is that Christians are strictly bound to use the creation as God intended it to be used. You understand? We do not have the option of misusing the created order. Our job is to uphold the created order and, as far as possible, to live in it as God designed it to work. Because when we do that, when we do that, we are as open as possible to God's life coming to us and flowing through us. And we're able, more able than, than in other circumstances, to love him in return. That's why this creation is so important. That's, that's why it's so important. That's why the issues that we're currently facing around us are so fundamental to their faith. They are not secondary issues. They come right down to the root of it. You know, I want to give you robust answers for these issues in the, in the culture as we encounter them. There are Christians who advocate for affirming transgender, same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage. And the truth is, they don't understand what I just explained to you. But that is what Christians have believed for nearly 2,000 years. They may be well-intentioned. They may be my brothers in Christ. I don't know them all. They may be wanting to do the right thing. They may be motivated by all sorts of good things. But they don't understand this fundamental truth. They are basically suggesting you can take the phone into different pieces, disassemble it, reassemble it in a different order, and it'll work just fine. And it won't. Or they're saying the phone's not broken and doesn't need to be fixed. God's world, especially human life, is designed to perfectly communicate God's divine life to us. When we live as God designed us to live, we open ourselves up fully to his grace. And allow his power to flow into us and through us. The line is perfectly clear when we live that way. But when we willfully live in opposition to it, we cut ourselves off from that, that source of life. Now, I'm not going to make it personal in any way, but I want to give you tools to know why we think what we think. And maybe some answers, if you can remember any of what I've said to you. Any pictures, some answers to help you to talk about these things with people who are maybe struggling with it. So this Christ priesthood. I think there's some really cool stuff there. I hope I haven't busted your brains with theory. We're going to get on to the third point. Christ's kingship. So thirdly, in the ascension, Christ's office as king is continued and it's transformed because there is now a man in heaven. 
So that's this, uh, this fact, Christ's kingship, is, uh, is continued, is uh, revealed to us by the direction of the ascension. I mean, there's a reason why Jesus went up into the air. I'm guessing God could have kind of taken him back to heaven any way he wanted to. He could have you know, opened the door in front of him or had the ground open up. That would have, that, you know, that would have sent the wrong message, wouldn't it? Going up into the air sends a message about what's actually happening. Up is not a coincidence. God wanted to make clear the significance of Jesus' departure. Jesus was ascending not just physically, but he was ascending in the way, the other way that we use the word of ascension, in the same way that Queen Elizabeth II ascended to the throne on what day? Anyone? I don't know, so I'm literally asking. If I... Thank you. Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne. Jesus ascended to his throne this day. A throne of power, which is why in the New Testament, the most common phrase we find to describe where Jesus is right now is he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We say it in the Creed, don't we? It's there again and again in Scripture. And that's why he says to the disciples in Matthew, he says, all authority in heaven has been given to me because the right hand of the Father represents this position of absolute power. Delegated authority. Jesus, as, as a man, has been given authority by the Father to exercise his reign. And so Ephesians 1 says, He is now far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, for the Father has put all things under his feet. And Daniel 7, prophesying about this day, the day of the ascension, Daniel seven fourteen says this, he sees a, 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 one like a son of man in heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of God has never not been in charge. Because he's God, he's always exercised the authority of God, he's always been fully God. But now because he's a man, he does it in a new way. At the ascension, the kingdom of God is inaugurated. We could picture it like this. You, um, I've never seen it happen, but you know, when the, the Americans went to the moon, they planted a flag <laughs> to say, like, you know, we were here first. If you go to some unvisited territory in Ireland, I mean, I don't think there's anywhere left in the world, but if you found somewhere that no one else had been before and it wasn't claimed by any other nation, you could put your flag in and say, this is now British territory or... Jeff Land or whatever, whatever it is. And you could go away again and it would be yours, but you're not actually bringing anything to bear in there. But one day you might think, okay, well now we're going to move to Jeff Land or whatever it's called. We're going to come and we're going to build a city there. And we're going to make our living there. And that's essentially what's happened. Jesus has always been in charge of the world as the son of God. He's always mediated God's will to us in a way that's really hard for us to understand. But now as a man, he's going to bring the, the physical reign of God into existence. He's going to make things actually happen in our everyday lives that are more concrete than the way God has ruled in the past. What that means is that after the ascension, the kingdom of God now is gradually becoming a reality that has a, a physical presence in the world. It begins to take a concrete form. It's like God is building like a fortress or a city in the middle of a desert. It's, but it's actually happening. It's not just spiritual anymore. That's really, really important because a man is in heaven. You understand? see the link? It's not just spiritual anymore. And this lifting up, this lifting up of Jesus begins an unstoppable process. We are now in the last age of the world. 
The final hour has come. This is the time we live in. A time unlike any others. An unstoppable process has begun. Jesus is now going to draw all men to himself. He's going to reign until, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to reign until every enemy is defeated. From this moment on, it's an inexorable process to, to the time when one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That, that train has been set in motion. And it, it, it can't be abandoned. You know, the, the timer is ticking down and there's no way to stop it. Jesus one day will rule over everything. Every part of creation will accord with his perfect will. And will be purified and reconciled to the Father. Every part of creation. Because a man is in heaven. And he's doing that through the church. That's the physical bit. He's always been the son of God. Always mediating to us God's will. Through things that happen in the world. But now he's bringing things into reality through his church that didn't happen before. From this moment on. Through the lives of people who filled with the Holy Spirit. Bring the power of heaven into the everyday and every part of the everyday. He brings grace. He brings transformed lives. He carries his love. He brings his law, perfect and beautiful, to bear into every situation. You know, this moment in Isaiah foretold, there'll be a day when every people will come, many people will come, and they'll say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We are in those days. Because he's exercising his kingship right now. And it's going out through the church. And we are the guys who are telling people about his law. Not literally saying you have to obey this law. But we're showing how the kingdom of the Messiah works. And his reign, it brings abundance in in the flourishing of society. And the flourishing of your lives. It brings judgment into the world. It rallies his enemies against him and his allies with him. It's actually happening all around us right now. You know, and... We talk about this, the kingdom of God as if it's just spiritual. But folks, that's what happened up until the ascension. But from the moment of the ascension onwards, the kingdom of God is never just spiritual. It includes every aspect of reality. It's not a worldly kingdom. It doesn't have armies or borders. But it is a kingdom in this world. Two quick applications. There's a name for the church in this age in which we live, which the kingdom of the world is spreading. It's old-fashioned, and I know I'm always quoting old-fashioned things. But it's this, it's the, the church militant. I love that phrase. I think it's so descriptive. The church militant. And folks, we need a militant approach. Not literally firing guns. <laughs> Nothing like that. But we should look out at the world and say, Jesus is king. All this is his. We're going to take it for him. Don't you think? Every territory of human existence, every sphere of human existence, Jesus Christ cries out over it. That is mine. And I want you to go and claim it for me. Everything in your work life, everything in your home life, everything you love, every part of your thoughts, every part of philosophy in the world, every bit of art or music, every literally every country, every place should be claimed for Christ. Because when Jesus is king over those places, when he's claimed it and we claim it for him, those things become more beautiful, 
more good, more true, more glorifying to God, more enjoyable to us, and more themselves as well. Everything becomes better when Jesus is king over it. And the people you know who aren't Christians, we should look at them, we don't objectify people, we should look at them and say, your gifts and your talents, the things that you love, and the quirks about your personality, that's meant to belong to Jesus. And if you knew him, you would be more alive, and he would be more glorified, and the whole world would be more full of his beauty and his glory. Isn't that a good reason to tell people about Jesus, along with all the other reasons we have? What do you leave unexamined in your life? What do you leave unclaimed that belongs to Jesus? Time or money or your job or your service or your talents and abilities? What are you wasting or just not thinking about? I want to challenge you. Just ask God to show you, how can I use this part of my life as part of your kingdom? Because he wants to do it. One big application to finish with. The fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, it re-emphasizes for us that we, each of us individually, have to accept Jesus Christ as our own Lord. He is your King. He is your King. And each one of us has to give him allegiance. He's a man as well as God. And we have to give him our allegiance. Like we're squaring allegiance to the Queen or to a president or a Something we have to give him our allegiance, and that's an actual thing we have to do. You know, for a long time in my own life, this idea that Jesus was Lord was a vague concept to me. I, I think I obeyed him, I did my best, I didn't really get that I had to obey him, you know. And at one point in my life, sometime in my early 20s, God whacked me with this truth, and I began to wonder if I'd ever been a Christian in the first place. I was. I can see through God's grace that I was. But I began to realise I never really got the idea that I had to bow the knee to Jesus. And when I got that, so many things clicked into place about how this whole Christianity business worked. And my, the depth of my experience, the richness of my interaction with God, the depth of my spiritual life just took off. Because I was in service of a king, not just like worshipping God. I wasn't just thankful that he saved me anymore, which is really, really important, by the way. But I was living for him as my king. As one Christian writes this, in order for you to have Christ as your saviour, you must first have received him as your lord, as your king to rule over you. For God saves none in their rebellion against him. You must cease your rebellion against him and his, and his authority and give him the throne of your heart as our ruler, or he is not your saviour, no matter what your profession you know, I think the fact that he is a man, still fully human in heaven, makes that submission easier. It makes it more concrete. You will one day meet the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. You will bend your knee before him, not symbolically. Your knees will touch the floor. Your face will probably touch the floor. Terrifying and wonderful. He personally will judge your life with you. He personally will pronounce his forgiveness over you. If you trust in him. And what, Simply, what I want to ask you this morning is, have you made 
that step of submission to Jesus? Have you come to terms with it? Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you were baptised a really long time ago, maybe you're baptised as, as an infant, and you've lived with a vague conception. I've got to follow Jesus, or I'm a Christian. Call that, that can just be nominal. It can be Christian in name only. The question is, have you bowed the knee to him? Has there been a willing submission? And say, do you know what? Whatever happens, Jesus is my king. He is my authority. He is the one I follow. Have you made that decision? Maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. All these things are true. You'll have to meet him face to face. (laughs) You'll have to bend your knee before him. You need to confess him as Lord. I just want you this morning, imagine it. Seeing Christ face to face. If you're finding it hard to imagine, you can close your eyes if you have to. What is required of you is a moment of absolute surrender. Absolute surrender. And despite his awesome, absolute power and authority, this Jesus whom you see face to face will not take anything from you except what would otherwise destroy you. He will not rob you or harm you. He will not treat you, uh, cheat you or trick you or walk out on you. He will not take advantage of your vulnerability at all in that moment when you submit to him. He will not win your trust and then abandon you. He will never stop providing for you. But you must give yourself to him and surrender completely. Place yourself entirely into his hands. To be a Christian, you have to submit your mind to him. And there will be times, because it's submission, when you think that being a Christian and following Jesus is the craziest thing. But he will make you wise. That is his promise. That's why submission is good. There will be, he, you must give him your will. There will be times when it seems as though he's leading you into slavery to do things that you never wanted to do. Maybe the last thing on earth that you wanted to do. But he will set you free. In that moment of submission, you have to give him your heart. You have to surrender your idols, all the things that you currently worship, that you think make your life full. You must be willing to put them all away. To the point that you think, my life will be empty, I'll have nothing left. What will they be worth living for? But he will fill you. He will give you more than you can possibly imagine. You have to give him your strength. You have to admit before him your weakness, your inability to fix yourself, your inability to find satisfaction. How long have you been looking for now? For something that will fill the gap inside you, looking again and again and again, down every dead end you can find, and the highway is out before you, and he's calling you to come to him. I have everything you need. You need to admit your inability to give yourself salvation or anything looking like it. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot atone for your misdeeds. You cannot be the person you know you should be. Surrender to him and he will heal you. And he will fill you with a strength to live that you so far haven't imagined possible. And many of you have taken this step of submission 
to the King of Kings. But perhaps some of you haven't. It's such a big thing. There's no point minimising it. You know, and maybe even now there are shreds of defiance in your heart that flicker. Maybe right now you hear the devil's voice shouting in your ear, don't do it, you're going to be made a fool of, you're going to look silly. Don't listen to him. The Lord stands before you. The ascended king, the exalted Lord, stands before you as a man, holy, trustworthy, good, beautiful. The nail marks in his hands prove to you that he loves you. And the life that flows from him prove his power to do the things that he promises. Give him your heart. And he, you will ascend with him. That's the promise. Your life will be hidden with Christ and God. There'll be a power flowing from heaven into you that you cannot imagine. And when he returns in the same way that he went, you'll be raised with him to live forever in a world of goodness and purity and wholeness beyond anything you can dream. That's the promise if we bow the knee to Jesus. So we pray. Lord, Maranatha, come. Let's pray.